0: In the summer of 1990, two U.S. Embassy employees were enjoying a beer at a Moscow hotel when a stranger came up to them and interrupted their conversation. He started asking about their roles at the embassy, claiming he had worked there years before. He flashed $100 bills and pulled out an official U.S. passport. The two embassy workers looked at it. The name should have struck a bell, but it didn't. The whole situation was just off. The stranger spoke perfect English and excellent Russian. Then he brought them a bottle of wine, paying for it from the wad of hundreds. The two embassy workers were suspicious. That's when the stranger got down to business. He told them he needed to speak with the head of the Marine Guard at the U.S. Embassy. It was vital. He had important information there was an immediate threat to 5,000 Americans living in Iran. The claim, however, only increased the two embassy workers' suspicions. They refused to help. The stranger got upset. He seemed drunk. He asked them, why were they not drinking the champagne? Did they want money? Women? The embassy workers eventually left the hotel without the stranger. Only later did the two learn they had come face to face with one of the FBI's most wanted criminals. His name? Edward Lee Howard. He was an ex-CIA officer trained in counter surveillance. He was suspected of damaging the U.S. spy network throughout Russia. And this encounter at the hotel would be the last physical contact he'd make with any U.S. authority. On episode six of Muck Rock, Reporter George Levines uses 1,400 pages of FBI documents to tell the story of Edward Lee Howard. It's a story of failed polygraph tests, fake bodies, and an honest look at a spy who slipped out from under the FBI's grasp. I'm Michael Morrissey. This is MuckRock. Keep listening.
1: Edward Lee Howard's FBI file paints a picture of a troubled man. He's struggled with alcohol and mental health issues. His drinking increased whenever his in-laws were in town. But really, his, his troubles start in 1983 when the CIA fails him uh, on a polygraph. And then he fails a second one. After the second failure, the CIA directs him to the psychiatrist who instructs him to Admit to anything criminal in his past. What came up? So, so after the third polygraph, or on the third polygraph rather, Howard admits to stealing a Russian language dictionary, cheating on his income taxes, and and beating a man in Peru.
0: He's got troubles. He's got. He drinks too much. You know, things aren't going well.
1: Right. In his book, he claims that the results of the third test are inconclusive, but. The results of the third test, whatever they were, result in him being denied a position overseas with the CIA. And it's really unclear at this point whether he was asked for his resignation, whether he was fired, dismissed, whatever the case may be. He, he leaves the CIA and moves to New Mexico where his drinking increases. He seeks counseling for his struggles. It doesn't work. The file really portrays this lost soul with nothing left but his secrets. working, at this point, a steady day job at the Legislative Finance Committee um, in Santa Fe. Everything seems to be going well, but there's still some things that are disturbing him. In the file, we find a recording uh, over a Russian language tape from Georgetown University Press where he's he's recounting this dream. and He says, for some reason I was in a coffin, my best friend. For some
0: reason I was in a coffin, and my best friend, I could see him. I believe I was still in Germany, and I got involved with some guys, and we broke into a factory. factory. It's all very vague. So he's, it sounds like, fantasizing about criminal activity at this point?
1: He's not at peace. He starts committing these crimes. He gets involved in an altercation and pulls a gun on somebody. Then he's rumored to have begun spilling his secrets or whatever he knew before he left the CIA. The document suggests he may have met with Soviets numerous times, one document reports a meeting in Juarez, Mexico. Another states a rendezvous in Vienna, Austria. Uh, another document shows that Soviets had him on their payroll. He makes a deposit into a Swiss bank account after a meeting.
0: So he's pulling guns on people. He's traveling around the world. He's getting mysterious, kind of sketchy bank deposits in a Swiss account. Is the FBI doing anything or have they, is he totally off their radar at this point?
1: His meetings with the Soviets, or his alleged meeting with the Soviets, go on for a long time, but they don't know what's going on until a Soviet defector walks into the U.S. Embassy in London and implicates Howard as, as a double agent. So they start what's called overt surveillance, um, basically being very obvious about the fact that you're watching somebody as opposed to covert surveillance. You know. So they park vans and place agents at, at Howard's known whereabouts in, in New Mexico, and eventually they get in contact with him. They have a sort of spy trade. They, they meet in room 327 of the Hilton Hotel in, in Santa Fe, and FBI agents tell Howard about the KGB agent who has implicated him, and they ask him to take a polygraph at that point.
0: Now this is his worst fear, a polygraph.
1: Of course, you can imagine at that point he becomes very hostile. He's been there, he's done that, it ruined his life already once, and so he leaves the hotel, the FBI of course follows. The next day though, for reasons unknown, he has a sudden change of heart and he he agrees to take a polygraph in order to get the FBI off his back.
0: So he schedules a time, says I'll play ball, and they agree to meet again
1: yeah I think it's a little he doesn't exactly do that. He says he's potentially willing to do it, but he's going to get in contact with his attorney first. Now, in that time that he's supposedly going to talk to his attorney, the FBI moves into discreet surveillance. they They figure they're going to avoid antagonizing Howard's newly cooperative demeanor. Um, and in in that short span of time, they have no idea, but Howard disappears.
0: Hold up, so this is a trained CIA operative. The FBI knows he's in trouble, and they just don't do enough surveillance?
1: Right, so the details are actually kind of complicated. It's, it starts with the flat terrain. Howard lives uh, about 30 minutes south of Santa Fe, and, and the train is very flat. You can pull it up on Google Maps and see. There's you know You can see for miles, really. And it makes covert surveillance very difficult. So to avoid any undue suspicion, the FBI uses uh, an RV crammed with surveillance equipment, um, and they and they code name it the Bell Tower. As far as the file, you know, reads it's it's just an RV with a bunch of you know microwave closed circuit video surveillance, video and audio surveillance equipment.
0: Now I always get the sense from my my sort of prejudices about New Mexico that there's a lot of RVs there, so it's probably not going to stand.
1: <laughs> I, I guess that was their thinking too. I don't know. So the FBI has been listening in. And, and two days after his initial meeting with the FBI, Howard leaves his home to go out to dinner with his wife. And the FBI knows about this. They, they've heard this conversation. They go to a place called Alfonso's. No longer exists. But there's a catch. And the catch is that the agent working the bell tower has insufficient training with the equipment. He's never worked the post before. And and he's given only a 45-minute tutorial on, on how things go.
0: So basically drop him into this New Mexico desert, drop him into this RV, say, here, figure it out as you go, and hope for the best.
1: Make sure this, you know, counter-surveillance trained CIA officer doesn't duck past you, even though you've never done
0: this before. And he wasn't the only spook in the family, was he? No, no,
1: no. No, his wife, Mary, uh, also a former CIA operative, although her her name in the document is redacted. uh, So this agent... They they're going out to dinner, they know that the FBI knows they're going out to dinner, but this agent doesn't see them leave. He misses their car leaving the driveway. He sees them come back as expected, but doesn't notice one important thing. Howard is not in the car. The documents later show that after Howard's dinner, they drive around Santa Fe for a little bit, trying to clean themselves of any tales. They try to try and ditch anybody who might be following them. So at some point they turn a corner and Howard gets out of the car. In his place, Mary props up a dummy with a little <laughs> hat.
0: What is this? A Disney movie? Yeah,
1: right. And and upon her return, she pulls into the driveway. The agent misses the fact that he's not in the seat. It's it's a it's a dummy instead. She walks inside, places a phone call to Howard's counselor and she lifts a tape recorder to the phone and leaves a message so that the FBI can hear, confirming a future appointment with this counselor. So Howard never makes the appointment, as you can imagine. After he gets dropped off in Santa Fe, he hops on a jack airport bus to Albuquerque, and he's on his way to
0: Europe. Flying TWA. Wait, don't we have sort of so much security screening and tracking, can't they stop him before he gets out of the country? Sure, sure. This is post-9-11 now, but
1: then, you know, you could just buy a ticket, and as long as you're within the price range, you can go kind of wherever you want. So Howard buys a ticket, a trip from Tucson, Arizona, to JFK, to Copenhagen, Denmark, and instead he flies Tucson, Arizona, to St. Louis, to JFK, and then on to London Heathrow. And he's gone. Poof.
0: And then, what next? Does he disappear from there? Do we have any trace of him?
1: So they launch an internal investigation to find out how exactly they lose him. They've got the flight records, the toll receipts, hotel stays, subscription records. Um, They dig up an ammunition box in his backyard filled with gold that was allegedly from the Soviets. They go deeper into his past, looking at colleagues from the Peace Corps, 17 subpoenas, and records of phone calls, postcards, and letters but they can't find him. For the FBI, I mean, his story is really, really a big embarrassment. On September 23rd in 1985, they file a warrant for his arrest, charging him with espionage, and eventually Howard pops up in Russia, the Soviets having granted him political asylum. His family occasionally visited, but no U.S. authority makes contact with Howard or even knew where he was until he walks into the mezdunarodnaya hotel in Moscow. There's these two embassy workers sitting there, and he walks up to them, kind of this crazy person. The FBI file gets a report from both of these embassy workers, and they really describe him almost as, like, this slick drunk who's throwing around $100 bills. He buys them champagne. He's talking to them, telling them that, he knows what they do, and that he's got this information uh, about 5,000 American lives in Iran that are in danger, and he needs to get to the head naval guard at the U.S. embassy. And both of these guys are kind of, like, not really sure what's going on. They have no idea who he is. He flashes his passport, but they, you know... Don't make the a- a- connection. Yeah, they don't make the connection. It says Edward Lee Howard. It's not a fake... Pa- he had many... He had seven or eight aliases, but they don't make the connection until later when when... You know, the FBI eventually gets in touch with them for an interview. It would be another 10 years before Howard's name would pop up again in any FBI documents. Uh, Prosecutors updated his arrest warrant in 2000 um, in case he should return to the US. He never did. The the whole thing kinda comes to an abrupt end, you know. In 2002, uh, he dies in a in a in a very thriller-like fashion. Um, he's at his dacha in Russia, and he's found with a broken neck at 50 years old. And, and you know, we have nothing more to go on than maybe he tripped and fell. You know, and that's kind of I think the the magic. And and also, what's frustrating about this file is is there's 1,400 pages. 1,400 pages of courier, typewritten FBI document. And then 500 of those redacted, leaving more questions than answers. Really, in the end, you know, is he a triple agent? Was he meant to be painted to the FBI as this crazed individual who had defected the CIA just in order to keep working for the CIA as a an American defector? In this file, there's there's more questions and 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 more complexities, and and the real truth is very enigmatic you you can't find it and maybe it's in the 500 redacted pages and maybe it's not that's really i think the kicker in this instance it's an interesting story but it's more about the journey because you can't get to the end of it at least not yet at least not yet
0: Our story today came from MuckRock reporter George Levines. Additional sourcing came from the FBI file on Edward Lee Howard, Walter Pincus from the Washington Post, Sabrina Tavernese of the New York Times, and Safe House by Edward Lee Howard. It was edited by Bradley Campbell and produced by Dean Russell and Paul Vikas. Music today came from Bad Bad Not Good. All the stories you hear on Muck Rock are made possible by the Freedom of Information Act. Want to file a public records request on your own? head to our website, M-U-C-K-R-O-C-K dot com. To date, Muckrock has filed 5,461 Freedom of Information requests, allowing more than 139,817 pages of public documents into the public eye. I'm Michael Morrissey. This is Muckrock. Thanks for listening.